0: Well good evening everyone, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Ezra, that's Old Testament, yes, and I'm going to remove the holy garments here. Okay. Uh, The Lord has put it on my heart um, to begin kind of a little series teaching through the books of the Bible that take uh, us through the history of the children of Israel as they're coming back from captivity. Um, I feel that it is a very appropriate um, uh, timeline for, for our dispensation to look at. Um, It deals with a a generation of people that was a small group, started out as a small group. Uh, They were returning to start over, uh, to honor God, to rebuild the temple, to get back to what God had for them as a people. Uh, They used the word of God as the final authority. Um, Whenever there was a problem that was uh, addressed, they went to the scriptures. Um, Ezra is a um, huge figure uh, when he comes to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, They are uncompromising um, when they realize that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, It's addressed to its fullest. Uh, Some of their measures might seem extreme to us, but we see that it is what the Lord desired for them and demanded of them uh, in order to see full blessing. And they're also a people that are uh, marked by their repentance. When they did fall into these situations where uh, they got into sins that were destructive to the children of Israel and it was brought before them. There was a uh, national repentance that would take place and there are people that are seen as a people of revival in the Old Testament, uh, something that we've been uh, seeking in our own personal lives to live a, um, a life for Christ, a life that's not one foot in the world, one foot in the, the church but firmly planted in the Lord. And I think that's a desire of all of our hearts. That's why we're all here tonight. Uh, Hopefully, we we seek to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And in order to do so, um, there are probably things in our life that uh, demand repentance from. Um, We're gonna look at this portion here uh, in Ezra. Ezra did not return with this first group of the children of Israel. Uh, He returns about 60 years later. But he is actually the one that chronicles this period of uh, returning from captivity. Um, it's also, Ezra is credited with writing First and Second Chronicles. Uh, so we owe a lot to this man, Ezra. And when he came, he's really a picture of everything we would want to be. He's a man that um, had a desire to, to know the word of the Lord, uh, to do the word of the Lord, and to teach the word of the Lord. And uh, someone that we, I myself, and I hope to train Noah up, that he would follow those same principles uh, to be like Ezra. So we're just going to read the first four verses here. And we're going to talk historically about what's really going on, certain prophecies that have been fulfilled. Hopefully it'll uh, stir our hearts to to praise and worship of our God in heaven. Uh, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Uh, So we have here a decree that goes out from Cyrus. um, When Jeremiah was prophesying, The northern kingdom had already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Um, This was many years later, Jeremiah is prophesying that the same fate is going to fall upon Judah. And the whole time, their line of thinking was, God has given us this place that his name would dwell here. There's no way that he's going to have us go and be captive somewhere else and let everything here be destroyed. Um, well they completely ignored the prophet and what he was saying and they completely ignored the scriptures and that if they were disobedient there were certain punishments that would be dealt out Uh, one of these punishments was further idolatry and we see that they were supposed to spend 70 years as sojourners as captives in a foreign land and we see that Nebuchadnezzar comes into the picture at around um, 605 BC he takes the first group captive and he leads them off well, they don't come back and lay the foundation until exactly 70 years later in 535 B.C. And the amazing thing about that is it's, it's no more and it's no less. It's 70. They were going to spend 70 years and they spent 70 years. Um, there was also a problem that they were supposed to let the land rest. Every seventh year was supposed to be a Sabbath year where they did not till the fields. They did not lay any crop. Well, they ignored that as well, and they had 490 years, ignored the the letting of the land lay rest, and God said, you owe me 70 years. And so from the time of the destruction of the temple, uh, when um, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he lays waste the temple, he throws rocks in the fields, he fills up the wells, he basically destroys the city, Um, that time period is recorded in Ezekiel 24.2. The exact day. Um, The day that the temple is rebuilt and the land is finally uh, given its opportunity to to till again is recorded the exact day in Haggai 2.18 and you can take it, it's 25,200 days and in the Jewish year is 360 days so you do the simple division and it's exactly 70 years to the day uh, recorded in history that the land laid rest. So what, what we're seeing in this is these people have witnessed miraculous works of God, uh, miraculous works of God that in a sense they were suffering for the sins of their fathers, uh, the sins of idolatry. And what's interesting about it is we see idolatry kind of beginning at, at the Tower of Babel um, when Nimrod is there and they're, they're trying to seek to, to build a temple to reach heaven. Um, this idea of worshiping other things or worshiping themselves, creating something else in place of God. And it's interesting that in order to rid the the children of Israel of this idolatry, he takes them back to this place and he makes them captives. And we see that they're there for 70 years and when they return, they don't return perfect, but we see that they're not given to idolatry anymore. They kind of worked all that out of their system. Um, We see that they're guilty of other things. Um, cold-heartedness, uh, lack of desire, a lack of fervor, apathy. We see that they go through the motions, that they don't um, maybe have the heart that they should, um, which is why I feel that it's more applicable um, to our own circumstances. Um, we're, we're really good at being busy, going through the motions, making sure all the boxes are checked, but is our heart in the right place? Um, we see that doing only one where, you know, they're, they're worshiping idols and then they would come and worship God. That didn't please him. Um, and they were worshiping God, they weren't worshiping idols, but the heart wasn't really in it. And that doesn't please God either. So what we see here is these people are returning, they're a people that are starting over. Um, the command goes out and it's a command that allows them to return, it doesn't force them to return. Um, We're going to see that out of the millions of Jews that were probably in the kingdom at this time, uh, it's recorded here, only about 50,000 returned. Um, It's a very small number, uh, and it's a testimony in itself, really, the fact that perhaps they felt they had more in Babylon than they would have going back and serving God in Jerusalem. I mentioned that there were six books that cover this period. Um, The one book that I probably will not delve into is the book of Esther. Um, The book of Esther deals with the children of Israel, uh, maybe 50 or 60 years after this first little mark here, and they're still in uh, the Persian kingdom, and they didn't return home. And we'll see that it's a book that's marked by a couple things that make it unique. One, uh, the name of God is not mentioned, Uh, prayer is not mentioned. Um, But one of the things that's undeniable is it shows how even though these people didn't return and even though they were in a foreign land, that the sovereignty of God protected his people. That even when the you know, wiles of the devil and of the world sought to destroy the children of Israel, God still had his hand upon them. And even though the name of God is not mentioned, it is clearly seen in the workings that take place. Um, our goal uh, through these messages is to deal with the people that did return um, and, and their struggles. One of the things that's going to come out in this is the tactics that Satan uses. Um, Satan is smarter than we can really know, um, and he's been around from the beginning. So we have this issue of he knows everything, kind of we've gone through our ups and downs, he knows what kind of makes us tick, uh, what uh, causes us to stumble and fall. Um, We see that he really just employs the same tactics. He doesn't really come up with anything new, Uh, it's just uh, the same thing repackaged. So what we want to do is identify what's going on in these periods here and make sure in our own life that uh, Satan is uh, recognized and dealt with. Um, We have here another uh, prophecy that's fulfilled. We're going to go ahead and turn to it real quick in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, we're going to begin reading in verse 28. Uh, This is the prophecy that uh, this man Cyrus would come. And Isaiah is writing at least 160 years before this takes place. And at the time Isaiah is writing, um, the Assyrians are in power, uh, and he's writing of a a king of the Medes that's going to overthrow the superpower Babylon and bring the people of Judah back which the northern kingdom, he was prophesying, would be taken away at this time. And like I say, the superpower was Assyria. So this would have seemed really strange probably at the time to be talking about a group that isn't even the superpower at the time, that this is all taking place. So in verse 28 of Isaiah 44, it says, that saith of Cyrus, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness, and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, Am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things." We see here that he makes this statement that Cyrus is going to be the one. Like I say, this is a 160 years before this takes place. And right when Cyrus comes into power in Babylon, uh, he makes this decree in his first year that the children of Israel uh, should go back and were allowed to go back and to rebuild uh, the temple and to begin the, the work there. Um, the interesting thing is it reminds me in a way of Pharaoh. Uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go that they may worship him, uh, worship me in the wilderness. And he says, no. Well, this is a case where the, the superpower at the time, the king, uh, the word of God says, you know, you're going to let my people go uh, back to Jerusalem and build the temple. And he says, yeah, I'm going to. So you see two kind of opposites there. One that um, you know, kind of opposes God directly, one that gives in to God, um, we see the results is the same. The word of God is fulfilled. Um, whatever God says will happen will happen. Um, so we have there, like I say, 160 years prophesied of this man, Cyrus, this one man would come and would let these people go back. And here we have in Ezra, uh, chapter 1, the fulfillment of that prophecy that they're able to return. Uh, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 5 here. It says, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto shesh the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, nine and twenty knives, thirty basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, four hundred and ten, and other vessels, a thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand and four hundred. All these the Sheshbazar bring up with them up of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Uh, so we have here recorded that there was a certain number of people whose hearts were stirred to return. Um, God stirred their hearts. Um, we can imagine these are people um, that have, many of them been born in captivity, uh, raised in captivity, uh, been forced into some form of idolatry, and yet had a desire to serve the true God, uh, knew the miraculous things that God had done, knew the promises that God had made from uh, the telling of their parents or those that were uh, older men and women. And we see that when this decree goes out, this, o- this option is made available. It's, it stirs in their hearts t- to go. Um, I think of this in a sense in the same way um, in the local church here. You know, it would be real easy to stay in a place that um, was familiar. This is what I know, um, this is what I'm used to, and it's much more difficult to go off and try to begin something new, so I'm just gonna stay behind. Um, We see that these people would have had um, homes, families, jobs, Um, And they were uprooting all of this to go and to rebuild an entire nation. And in their hearts, they had to be thinking, how hard is this really going to be? But they trusted God, and they went forward. And I think even in our own lives, there's there's opportunities where we have that we can be complacent, um, that we can ignore really the opportunities that are before us. But in, in doing so, we restrict ourselves from the blessings that could follow and these were people that were not going to refuse this blessing no matter how hard it was going to be uh, they were going to return uh, to the place that God had given to them we see that they didn't start at nothing Um, even though so many didn't return they still helped they were still a part of it they were still a part of the Lord's work in the sense that they gave um, freely nobody twisted their arm Nobody forced them to do anything, Um, but it was something that of their own hearts they gave to the cause, even though they weren't going. Um, So we also see that Cyrus uh, gave them back all the things that had been sacked from the temple. Uh, So it's not as if they had to go back and recreate all of these uh, utensils that they used in the uh, temple at the time. So they didn't start at zero, there were many that uh, gave to the cause. And we see that every, everything that was given here uh, was recorded. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, chapter 2 is a really long chapter, and there's a lot of names in it. And uh, you can relax. I'm not going to try to read all of these uh, names and butcher my way through this chapter. Um, we're just going <clears> to <throat> highlight a few points here and move on to, to chapter 3. Um, in this portion here, what's comforting to know is that all the people that did return, uh, their names are recorded. Uh, these are special people to God um, in the sense that they, were, they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back and to do God's will um, in Jerusalem. So it says, Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah Everyone unto his city. Now, from verse two to eleven, we have um, so many. Or verse two, we have so many names in here. Um, from verse three to twenty-one, there's eighteen different clans or family groups that are listed. Um, from twenty-two to thirty-five is people from specific towns and villages um, that were returning. And from, uh, we see, uh, just bringing out in 36 to 39, the priests, um, verse 40, the Levites. Now, just real quick in verse 40, it says, The Levites, the children of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the children of Hodaviah, 70 and 4. We get a total, as I said later on in this chapter, of 50,000, uh, roughly, uh, just under 50,000. And of those 50,000 people, We have 74 Levites that return. And that's really a testimony in itself. Uh, We know that the Levites did not have uh, land laid aside. They had cities that they dwelt in. Um, Perhaps maybe they thought that they had more in Babylon than they would in Jerusalem and Judah. And so they stayed behind. Uh, I don't know. What's amazing is that when Ezra comes 60 years later, after this point, uh, they get so far And Ezra stops and he realizes there's no Levites in the company that are going back. And he says, okay, well, we're going to pray and fast until more Levites come. And there's only so many that come, but some do come. Um, But what we see is that the, the Levites were given the charge of attending to the house of God. And apparently that didn't appeal to them because they hadn't seen it, Uh, they weren't given a position of of high standing, Uh, they weren't raised as that being a respected thing. For whatever reason, not many Levites returned. And we see that uh, the work, uh, the care of the house of God was that which was probably neglected the most. And I think even in our day today, as we represent um, the church, um, perhaps that is the most neglected work that takes place in the world. Um, we have people that have a burden for the lost. We have people that go out in mission fields and do miraculous things in the name of the Lord and praise God for them. But it seems as if the care for the house of God is that which seems to be neglected the most. And it was true in this period of time, and I believe it's true in our uh Anathoth, 128. Um, Anathoth might sound familiar from Jeremiah, uh, I can't remember the chapter, I think it's 34, um, might be earlier, but Jeremiah's in prison, and God says that your cousin's going to come, he's going to sell some land to you. And at the time, um, Babylon had control of the outer parts, uh, Jeremiah's been prophesying that Jerusalem is going to fall, and uh, it's going to fall into the hands of the Babylonians, everything's going to be laid desolate. And now God's telling him, I want you to buy this land. And we see that it's really a promise given to Jeremiah that they will return. And we see that this uh, Anathoth was where he was from. And so he purchased land in Anathoth. And there would have been one copy um, that was tucked away, one copy that Jeremiah would have had given to his relatives or whoever he passed it on to. And we see that all this time later, uh, these people are returning to claim that land. And it's really just a miraculous thing to see that they had such faith in God to keep something like that, uh, believing that indeed God would restore them um, in the sense they had hope, hope in the word of God. And it should be the same hope that we have in the word of God, that uh, all the things that God says will uh, come to fruition. And so here we are, 128 uh, men from Anathoth coming back to uh, reclaim their portion. Um, We also have uh, later on, It gets through the Levites, the singers, the Nethanim, those that were servants in the temple. Um, It also mentions a certain group of people that their genealogy couldn't be traced. Um, We have in, uh, let's see, 61, it talks about those that don't have the daughters of Brasiliae and Gileadite and was called after their name. They sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, were they as polluted, put from the priesthood." Um, so there was also a group that were uh, saying that they were priests but couldn't show anything. Um, well, this was their first <laughs> kind of opposition. Um, here we have people that are claiming to be priests. If we allow them to do the work and they are in fact not priests, then we're kind of in big trouble. Um, so instead of putting themselves in a sticky situation, they just said, unless you can prove it, you can't partake. And that was a, a big first step. Uh, they could have compromised at this point, and they refused to. And I think, like I say, it's a, it marks them throughout their history that they don't compromise. So at this point here, they said, that, uh, and, uh, it said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and Thummim. Um, so until a high priest was recognized, until the, everything had been established, the high priest would come with the Urim and the Thummim and try to discern if, in fact, these people um, were of the priestly line. We don't have that recorded in scripture in any portion, so I would, wouldn't know one way or the other if they were or if they were not. But at this time, it was they were refused to, to go and to serve as priests. Um, We also have, just in verse 68, at the end of the chapter, it says, And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and one thousand drams of gold and five thousand pounds of silver and one hundred priest garments. So the priests and the Levites And some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. What we have here really is, it says they come to the house of the Lord. Um, The thing was demolished. There was no house of the Lord. There was no temple that was there. It was destroyed. But when they got there, they realized this is the place that God chose to Put his name, and it moved them in such a way that they freely gave. And it says that they gave according to their ability, and really, it's a principle that's set out that we should follow. Um, when we're moved by the spirit of the Lord to give, it should be something that's given freely. We don't—we're not forced to give anything, um, but it's something that we should, <clears throat> and it's something that we give according to our ability. He's not asking above and beyond, and he's not asking for less than our ability either. It says, according to their ability. So this is just something that uh, the hearts of these men, when they get back there, and they they see the difficulties that lie before them, um, but the way that Ezra records this in the scripture uh, really strikes a chord with me. When they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. Um, it's something that moved them to give what they had, and we see that that's how the work really began. Um, so that's that's chapter two of Ezra, and we're just going to get into chapter three, and we'll probably, I might uh, go over something in chapter four, but we might close here in chapter three. Uh, chapter three and verse one. When the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Joshua the son of Josadak and his brethren the priests and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brethren and build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God and they set the altar upon his basis for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord even burnt offerings morning and evening they kept also the feast of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon, and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia." Uh, So we have here in in, uh, Ezra chapter 3 really something that uh, reminds me of the book of the Acts. Um, In the seventh month, the seventh month would have been a character of the the Feast of Jehovah. We would have had the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booze would have occurred in this seventh month. Um, It says, when it it was come, and this was a time when all of the children of Israel were supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Jehovah there. And it says, when it was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. One mind, one purpose. For, you know, so many years they were in captivity they did not have opportunity to celebrate these things. They didn't have opportunity to partake of these things. Uh, I look at my own life. Uh, for, you know, 23 years I was in darkness, um, worshiping a God that I did not know and um, not truly worshiping anything. Um, you know, I was going after uh, the pride of my own life and my own heart. And we see that when I got saved, uh, I was fortunate enough to find a place like this where I could worship the God that saved me freely, that I could stand, that I could be audible, that I could lift my praises up, that I had freedom and liberty here. And it was it's something that I wouldn't trade for anything, um, despite the, the issues that we may have, despite the problems that come up. Um, that's something that I cherish deeply. And we see that with these people, when the opportunity came, everyone came. Nobody stayed home. This was something they've been waiting for for a very, very long time. And when we think about it, every time we gather together to remember the Lord on the Lord's Day, it may seem like another Sunday. It may seem like we're saying the same things. It may seem that for some of us, perhaps it's growing stale or it's getting old or... Um, whatever you might think. But it's really what pleases God. When we all come together as one mind, as one man, to worship Christ, to remember him in the way that he asked, with the bread and with the wine. Um, Let us not take that for granted. Let us be like it's the first time we get to do it. Maybe the last time we get to do it before he comes. So these were people that were excited. Uh, the interesting thing is that when, when God's looking down at the children of Israel, as I said before, there's only about 50,000 people. Um, but to him, his children are all there. And he looks at them as one. He doesn't look at them as like a small group. You know, if, if, were, if there were only 10 of us that got together to remember the Lord, if we came in one mind, then we came in one mind to remember his son. And that's what's important to him. It's not the number it's the fact that they were in unity. They all came with the same desire uh, to to worship God and to remember these feasts. And so we have these men that come to the forefront in Jeshua and in Zerubbabel that are the leaders of the people at the time. Uh, We see one is kind of the Zerubbabel, the governor, Jeshua, the the high priest, that uh, they build the altar. So the first thing that happens is they get to this location Um, They realize all the children of Israel have gathered in one central location, and they have no defenses. They're vulnerable to attack, and they really have nothing. They have no army. Um, They do have the decree of Cyrus, and that scared most of the people, but they knew that they were defenseless. And so the first thing they thought to do is we need to erect an altar, and we need to begin the sacrifices. And we need to honor God for bringing us back to this place. And so we see, they set the altar upon his basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Uh, So the first thing they did was worship God in a way that he's asked, erected an altar, started uh, the offerings. Common sense would have been we need to rebuild the walls, we need to find how many men can fight and we need to set up sentries so that you know when somebody's coming we can ring the bell and we can kind of hide uh... that's common sense that's you know military strategy try to set up defenses in case of attack um, they were going to rely on the lord uh... they knew that the lord had brought them back in a miraculous way that god wanted them there and if He wanted them there that he would protect them so they decided that instead of doing all the things the world would do we're going to erect the altar and we're going to offer Uh, burnt offerings. It says, They kept also the Feast of the Tabernacles as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. Um, How did they know how to do this? Well, they had the Word of God. And in the Word of God, everything was recorded that they should be doing. And we see that there was no form of um, the older men coming in and saying, well, we used to do it this way, or it, uh, it used to be done that way, and this is how we like it done. And so we're going to continue on that way. It was, what does the Word say? Because whatever the Word says, that's what we're going to do. And we have to, in our own hearts, we have ways of doing things that perhaps we like it. Um, But if it's not according to the Word of God, then it needs to be thrown out. And it it, it is plain and simple, though it is uh, hard to let go of things that, you know, perhaps we've grown comfortable with. Um, but the things that are against scripture uh, need to be uh, thrown out. So we have here the sacrifices begin, the feast begin, and they're, they're giving of the money to rebuild this temple. They realize it's going to be a, a difficult thing. And we see that they have to go to Lebanon, cut these trees, put them on a ship, bring them to Joppa, then bring them up from Joppa to Jerusalem just to start building the temple. So they have an altar. They don't have a foundation, but they have an altar. And they've decided that they've uh, begun this time of worship. It says in um, verse 8 Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month begins Zerobabo the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Yeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen and the house of God, the sons of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off." Um, The laying of this foundation really um, symbolizes the end of their sojourning, the end of their captivity. This is the closing of that 70-year period from when they were first taken away captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And what we have here is they've all come together, they know how it's supposed to go and this was something that was done at the completion of the temple originally. All the singers, all the, everything was orchestrated. Okay, this is how it's going to go. These people were celebrating just the laying of the foundation. And it was just a, a very emotional event for them. And it was so emotional that there was these ancient men that we realized the temple was destroyed just about 50 years before this, um, 50, 52 years. So there were men that had seen the temple. Um, that had seen it destroyed and we see that when the temple is built um, about uh, 20 years 20 years later it's finished from this point there's still these ancient men that are around to see the next temple built but when they see the foundation laid and they see these young men so joyous in the fact that they're back serving the Lord it causes them to weep you know why are they weeping What are they weeping for? Um, Perhaps they're weeping for lost time. Um, You know, the sins that they were guilty of has caused them to go into captivity, and now they're old. Now they're old men, and they they lost, you know, 50 years of opportunity that they could have been worshiping the true God. Um, The sins that they had committed had kept the next generation uh, until now from worshiping the true God. We also see that perhaps they were weeping because it was so small. Um, Solomon's temple would have been just a massive, beautiful piece of architecture. And here they're celebrating this little teeny foundation that's been laid. And they're weeping to think if only these men had seen the original, uh, what Solomon had built. And so there was a lot of regrets um, and it should stir in our hearts. We don't wanna get to a certain age and have regrets in our life. We don't wanna get to a point where we see so many people that are hungry and going on for the Lord and we realized we've wasted so much time that we've missed opportunities. Um, These were uh, at least the people that did return to see the work begin again and it was something that was uh, comforting But it's such a joyous event that even though they were weeping, uh, the shouts of joy were heard afar off, not the shouts of weeping. Um, So we take comfort in the fact that it was a joyous time uh, for the children of Israel at this time to to come back and to begin the work again. Um, So hopefully what we can do is realize that the word of God is true. There were so many prophecies that came to fulfillment in this little portion here in these three chapters. Um, There's so much prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, We don't know when it's coming. We don't have an exact date, um, but we know it's coming. And we need to be found waiting and watching. And we don't want to be, when the Lord appears, one that isn't happy at his appearing, um, one that weeps when we see our Savior face-to-face. We want to be those that are ready um, to meet our Lord face-to-face. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank Thee for Your Word that You've given to us. The fact that we can uh, see so much of Your Word fulfilled, Father, that gives us strength, uh, that gives us hope, that brings joy to our hearts, that we would live for Thee, uh, that we would claim these promises that we have. Father, knowing that Your Son is coming again for us, knowing that we will be like Thy Son, knowing that Your will for us is our sanctification. Um, Father, we pray that there be Uh, if there be any need of repentance as a whole here in this congregation, uh, that we would be willing to lay our pride aside and repent, uh, that we would turn back to thee, that indeed we would uh, pick up the the testimony and continue on for our Lord, uh, that his name would be proclaimed and would be great among uh, the world here. Uh, We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.